We are in the middle of a sermon series. We've been talking about the last several weeks all about trees uh, because we recognize that there's a lot that we can learn from trees. Every major religion uses trees as an operative metaphor that imparts wisdom, things that we can learn. We should aspire to be like trees in all of these different ways. Often they're associated in word pictures and all throughout the Christian scripture they teach us uh, what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we've tried to pull principles from trees that we can live out in our own life that help us to flourish. We all want to flourish in our lives. We might have a different definition of what flourishing looks like, but ultimately that's what we want. We want that in our relationships. We want that in our homes, in our friendships, in our places of business, in our families. We want to flourish, and we believe that if we could live out these principles that we've talked about over the last several weeks, that they would help us to do that. And so today we're going to talk about one more principle. My guess is you know where this sermon is going this morning. Uh, and so let me just caveat. For those of you, if this is your first time or maybe first time in like a while, you're like, oh, we picked money Sunday to come to church. Awesome. Uh, you did. And it's going to be awesome. But here's, here's my promise. I'm not going to ask you for money this Sunday. I'm not asking you for money. You're off the hook. I'm going to ask it for you next Sunday. So I imagine all of you will be back next Sunday. No, but we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about generosity, and we're going to talk about giving, and we're going to talk about money. And I know that depending on your background, you have had different levels of experiences and different comfort levels with talking about money at church. So a couple of caveats. One, I think generosity is the greatest thing that you can do with your resources, to give it away. Two, I so strongly believe in this that I think it's true whether you give it here or not. Three, I think the church, the local church, is the best place you can give your money. Now, I'm going to start there, and then we're going to talk about generosity. So we got all of that kind of out of the way. One last, one last elephant in the room. None of us won the lottery last night, <laughs> and that's a big bummer. This would be a much more fun conversation if that last one had been true. But money is this weird, uncomfortable thing that we talk about in church for lots of different reasons, but I don't think it should be. Because as we'll see, I think it is one of the things that if we can learn to steward well, it can totally transform our lives and lead us to a life of flourishing. Now, each week we have kind of tried to connect a principle of flourishing derived from trees into our own lives. And this week is no different. So over the last several weeks, we have talked about different ways that trees live an interconnected life. So one example is kind of this um, fungal network that trees use to spread information to each other. We talked about it a couple weeks ago and how when we live tapped into a larger story, our lives flourish. And then a couple of weeks ago, I told you about this tree system of uh, quaking aspens in Utah called Pando and how it's actually a, a one tree forest. 48,000 trunks are all part of one singular tree organism and how trees, when they live connected, they flourish. Same is true for us. Well, there's another thing that we have learned and that scientists have learned from trees in the way that they live in relationship to one another. What they started to do is they started to measure the different trees and how they were connected to other trees. Specifically, how many other trees were trees connected to? Now, this is what's in interesting about this finding, is they learned that the bigger the tree, the healthier the tree, the larger, taller the tree, 
the more other trees it was connected to. And the smaller the trees, the younger the trees, the less robust and healthy the tree was, the less trees it was connected to. And so they started to create maps of ways that trees functioned in many ways, like the healthiest mother trees kind of functioned as central hubs in these tree networks. And when they put it together, it looks like this. So you can see the different size circles, which represent the different sizes of trees. Larger tree is a healthier tree. Smaller trees, less healthy because it's still growing. And then even the smallest trees, which you notice if you got it in and you were able to count the lines, the biggest trees are connected to the most other trees. And smaller and least connected, down it goes. But what they've learned is it's not just that they're connected, but they're connected for a reason. What they have recognized that these largest trees, the ones that are most connected, are also the ones most willing and equipped to share their resources with all of the other trees in the forest. And so what they've learned is that the oldest, largest, healthiest trees share upwards of 40% of their carbon and nutrients with the other smaller growing trees in the forest around it. There's something in the biology of these trees that recognize that the larger and the healthier that they grow, the more important it is for them to be connected to and to share those resources with the smaller growing trees around them. Now, this one, kind of the jump from what the application in our life is pretty straightforward this morning. And it's real simple. A flourishing life, whether it's for a tree or for us, is a generous life. A flourishing life is a generous life. Now, the reason we have to talk about this and the reason that we have to state it so clearly is despite us probably recognizing on some level this is true, our tendency is to not lean this way. In fact, our tendency is to operate in our own self-interest. See, what's so fascinating about these trees is there's this kind of default assumption derived from Darwinian evolution that survival of the fittest is what leads to kind of the propagation of the species. This is how species learn to adapt, thrive, and flourish, but not so with trees. Trees actually share their resources. They give away that which is essential and important to them for their own growth and flourishing. They let go of things at their own expense and cost to help the other trees in the forest. But as those trees grow, a rising tide lifts all boats. And trees learn this. And so we're kind of caught in this dynamic because I think, at least as followers of Christ, we're taught this, but yet society and culture teach us something totally different. They teach us this survival of the species mentality, this idea that, the only way to have enough is to have more and to constantly search after more. Now, this isn't a new kind of cultural phenomenon that society tells us that you need more and more and more and there's never really an end to enough. But this is something that has been happening since the beginning of time. And in fact, over 2,000 years ago, Paul is writing to an up-and-coming pastor, his apprentice, a guy named Timothy, and Timothy is the pastor of this kind of church start in this city called Ephesus, which is a trade city, is an important city. And because it was kind of a, a center of commerce in that region and area, there was a lot of wealth that was kind of newly developing in the city. And so as this church began to grow, Paul recognized that Timothy had a challenge before him. And that challenge was, how do you help people 
who are wealthy to follow after Jesus. Because he noticed that there seems to be this tendency with people who have means that it's easy to start to rely upon your means and not to rely upon God. You start to become more and more self-sufficient, more and more focused on your own prominence, your own flourishing, and oftentimes and usually at the expense of those around you. So this is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to tell his church. And this is what he says. He says, command those who are rich not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Now, the reason he tells Timothy to tell his church to do this, to command them this way, is because our natural human inclination is to do the exact opposite. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant. The tendency is, the more that you acquire, the more you start to rely on yourself. The definition of arrogance is like kind of a disproportionate self-reliance and self and sense of self-importance. Well, as you get more stuff, you are less dependent upon other people because of how much you have. So it's kind of there's this natural migration that happens as you amass more and more and more that you need those around you less and less and less. Well, if you don't need anybody else, you probably have a different and a skewed sense of self-importance, which we all know people. We all know people who are rich and arrogant. It just seems to be the way that it trends. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and telling Timothy to tell his church, like, command those who are rich not to be arrogant. Now, before we go any further, we have to kind of name the thing that probably is wrestling in your brains and it wrestles with mine. Oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. Right? Because if you were to ask people, if I was to ask you, are you rich? We'd all say no. Most of us would say no. And the reason that we would say no, and the reason that nobody identifies as rich, is because we believe that rich is in relationship to the other people around us. And how many of us know somebody richer than we are? Uh-huh. That's why we're not rich. Well, I'm not rich just because they're rich. And if they're rich, that means I'm not rich. See, what's interesting about this is if nobody seems to be rich, how come everybody seems to be generous? If I was to ask you, are you rich? You'd probably say no. If I said, are you generous? You would say, well, yes. There's this interesting kind of self-awareness or lack of self-awareness that because other people have more than I do, I'm not rich. But because I give anything, I'm generous. And so we probably need to dig down a little bit further as to what this is actually supposed to look like. Now, the other thing that Paul tells Timothy to tell the church is, one, command them who are rich not to be arrogant, to check themselves, to have a little bit of self-awareness about where the acquisition of wealth pulls them in terms of their own sense of importance and significance. And then the other thing that it does is it migrates our source of hope, nor to put their hope in wealth. Now, the reason that we can verify that the more wealth we acquire the more it skews our hope, is because how many of you had a conversation this week as to how you would spend your lottery winnings if you won the lottery? Huh? Yeah. In every environment that I was in this week, at some point it came up, okay, what would you buy first? Like, how would you spend? And then typically there would be a conversation about, oh, I would you know, pay off all the debt of the people in my life, or oh, well, first I'd have a house in this city, and then I'd have a house in, the, you know, you start to dream and you start to imagine about what the money, what the wealth could do for you. There's this natural kind of like 
wishing and dreaming and hoping that happens as we think about having more. It pulls us, like excites us. There does something inside of us because it migrates our hope. And so Paul's like, you gotta let them know that one, they're, they're rich. Help them see that just because other people have more than them, in relationship to the greater whole, they're rich. Now, using kind of worldwide statistics, if you make more than $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% globally. Just a sense of perspective. More than $37,000, you're top 4% of the entire world. If you're top 4%, that's rich. Now, what happens is, because of where we live and who we know and where we work, we all know people who have more than us. And so we think this doesn't apply to us. But my guess is that for the vast majority of us in this room, Paul is writing to us. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant, not to put you know, too much hope in their wealth. Why? Because it's so uncertain. And this is the saddest kind of part of this writing that I experience as a pastor is it is it is a common occurrence when someone shows up you know to meet with me and their hopes their sense of security their sense of insulation because of their wealth hasn't been able to prevent tragedy from happening to them whether it's their own health or the loss of a loved one or a relational crisis or you know, collapse. No amount of money can prevent certain things from happening to us. But sometimes we get so insulated from that truth because of the amount that we have that we forget that that's the reality until we're brutally confronted with that fact. And it's, it's heartbreaking because you see the pain and the suffering and the recognition of this truth when you talk to these people. Like, I just... I was going to be okay. Like I thought, whatever the circumstance and situation may be, because they had placed so much hope and so much trust in this false sense of security that their wealth insulated them from all of the catastrophes of life. And so Paul says, tell them to be careful not to put their hope in wealth because it's uncertain. And instead, he gives us a counter. He says, but tell them, to appropriately prioritize and put their trust and hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's a shift. But what we recognize is that the more we have, the more likely we are to need more and to want more, to gain more, so that we can have more, to be more, to feel more safe and secure. But Paul says, this is a mistake. Like, when you live this way, you put your hope and trust in the wrong things. And so he says, place it in God. Place it somewhere that you can actually trust in it. doesn't mean that it prevents bad things from happening to you, but it's a source that you can go to in times of crisis and difficulty. Place your hope and your trust in God, not in your wealth, because ultimately it doesn't bring you all of the satisfaction and the meaning and the security that you want. My guess is you all know a really miserable rich person. 
And the thought is, perhaps the conversation is behind closed doors, God, if I had what they had, I wouldn't feel that way. God, if I could have their resources or their investment portfolio, I wouldn't, I'd be happy. Like that would be, that would be all I need. But yet once you get to that place, you see the next person who has more. And you're like, oh, but then if I was there, then I would be. Gallup did this really interesting, probably not surprising study where they started to ask people, like, what would it take for them to be content? And they asked people at every kind of socioeconomic level. People who made $50,000 a year, guess what contentment looked like for them? 100000 People at 75,000, guess what contentment looked, at, looked like for them? 150,000. People at 250,000, guess what contentment looked like for them? 500,000. It didn't really matter where you were. It was just double what you had. There was this sense that if I could have the next rung on the ladder in terms of wealth and finance, then, then I'd be secure. There's kind of like this lifestyle creep, this hope creep that we've all experienced. My guess is you can recall back to some point in your life when you made less than you made now. And you go, gosh, back then I would have given anything to be here. And now that I'm here, I want to be there. The target and the goalposts, they keep moving. And Paul said, you've got to caution people. It is easy. There's a natural gravitational pull for wealth to say, trust in me. It's okay. I'll give you everything that you want to need. And Paul's saying it's a dangerous lie. It's a false reality. So he gives a different set of instructions. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Command them to do good, to shift their focus and their priority, to be rich, not in possessions, not in portfolios, not in real estate assets, but to be rich what? In good deeds to be generous and willing to share. Like I said before, nobody thinks they're rich and everybody thinks they're generous. And so what does it look like to actually live into this? What does it actually look like to live into a generous lifestyle? I think there's a couple of ideas that scripture gives us, but I think the reason behind why we're supposed to live into a generous lifestyle is because it's actually the way to live a flourishing life. See, Paul ends this whole command about warning about the dangers of hope and trust and wealth, commanding people to be generous, to be willing to share, to be rich in good deeds. And he says, they, they need to do this. Like You need to help them understand this. It's crucial that they get this. Why? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. A flourishing life is a generous life. There is a, a phenomenon that happens in the brain, kind of, it's called like the impact phenomenon. And what happens is uh, when you have an acute need, let's say that you're hungry, your brain shifts that need in terms of level of importance to kind of like front and center. And so it like diminishes all of the other needs your, your body might have and your brain has in that moment and prioritizes and emphasizes that specific need. Well, what happens when you place your hope and your trust in your resources, there's this sense that you don't have as much as you need. 
And so as you begin to think about how you need more and how you don't have enough, your brain shifts that into kind of front and center focus. And so it's this self-perpetuating cycle that goes on and on and on about how when you have the wrong perspective, when you're focused on what you need so that you have enough, it becomes the central focus of your life. We all know people who are kind of on this endless treadmill. I think it says something about our society that an extra hour of sleep in the morning feels like the greatest gift come down from heaven that we've ever received. Like, what are we doing to ourselves? Why are we so tired and overworked and so focused on the acquisition of more? Perhaps it's because our hope is not in the right place. Perhaps it's because our hope is in reaching a certain financial level of wealth that then we, we, we would feel like, at least we tell ourselves, that we'd have enough. And so we constantly chase. And Paul's saying, it's never going to work. Shift your hope. Place it in God. And then start to focus on all of the ways that you can be generous, on all of the opportunities around you to live into kind of this generous lifestyle. And it's in that, he says, that you find life that is truly life. And so as we try to think about what would it look like to actually live a generous lifestyle, I think there's three ways and I think it leads us into Commitment Sunday next week. But the first is generosity works best when it's planned. It is hard to count on spontaneous generosity because spontaneity is based on how you feel. And raise your hand again if you feel like you're, generous, you're rich. Excuse me? See? We're not rich. We don't have enough. And if we don't have enough, then we can't give because giving is out of abundance and if we're constantly in this place of scarcity and we don't feel rich and we probably don't feel like giving because we don't have enough for what we need. And you see how this never works? Like it, we never get there if we have this focus. And so what would it look like instead to have planned generosity? To make a decision, whether it's at the end of this year, like now, okay, for my family, for me and my spouse, for my household of one what does it look like to think through and plan? Okay, what is my generosity going to look like in 2023? Because if, I promise you, if you're new to this and you wait till you feel like being generous and that generosity depending on you feeling like you're rich, that moment's not coming. Or it's not coming in the way that you anticipate that it's going to come. So one, what does it look like to plan your generosity? Again, I think the local church is the best place to plan your generosity. But there are also a lot of other places out in the world who do really good work, who would be great stewards and benefits of your generosity. What does it look like to, to one, make a plan? Two, what does it look like to pick a percentage and plan on that percentage? Because see, what happens when you make it amount generosity, the more that you gain, the amount changes in relationship part of the whole. I don't know if you know that's how you determine percentage, but you take the part and you divide it by the whole, and that gives you the percentage. But when you focus on the amount, let's say that you gave $1,000, and then next year you make twice as much. And so you're like, oh, well, I'm going to give $2,000 this year. I doubled my salary. I'm going to double my giving. That's great. But when you focus on the amount, now you have a different percentage of giving than you did previously. I mean, Jesus tells this story. He talks about this moment of offering when the rich people come and they put their big coin, you know, bag of coins in the offering basket. And then, you know, the one kind of, you know, 
poor woman brings her two little copper coins and puts them in and he says, see her? She's given more than everybody this morning. Why? Because Jesus knows that there's something about percentage that's connected to heart. Amount is good, but percentage is better because as your wealth grows, the percentage grows. Part stays equal with whole. The last is progressive. For some of you, you do the first step. You do make a plan to give. For the others of you, you plan to give and you plan a specific percentage. And if you're there, then the next thing you need to do is to have a progressive scope of generosity. This is hard because once you get to, let's say, 10%, which is kind of called the tithe in Scripture, there's kind of this biblical kind of concept around like 10% seems to be the magic number that triggers kind of the right towards Allie's kid sermon, like the right release of heart over your stuff. 10% seems to be the magic number. Even if you're not at 10%, like percentage is important, but for Scripture it says 10%. Well, if you make a plan to give 10%, and then at some point in the future, your income level doubles, triples, grows in some shape, like you can stall out on your giving. You're like, yeah, I give 10%. I give 10%. And at some point, it doesn't trigger the same impact of heart that it previously did. Because generosity isn't about amount. It isn't, it isn't about like perception. It's about our heart. And so when you plan to give, and you plan a percentage to give, and then over time you see that be progressive and grow, then it protects us from the thing that Paul warns us about at the beginning of the scripture. He says it's easy to put your hope in wealth, to become arrogant, a skewed sense of self-importance because of what we have. He says the antidote to all of that is generosity. And that's why next Sunday, we think it's an important act of faithfulness and commitment, one, to the church, but two, and more importantly, to God. Like, this is something that we do in relationship to God and our relationship with God. So we say, okay, God, we recognize that our hope is in you, the source of all of this. We're just temporary stewards. We bring it to you. We're going to make a plan to give a percentage and maybe we have progressed that or we'll choose to progress that over time. So God, this is kind of our way of letting you know that our hearts are in line with what you're doing. Now, if you stuck around last Sunday for State of the Church, uh, I shared this statistic, but I thought it was important to share with you today. So when we look back over the last several years in terms of the percentage of households that give to the church financially, this is what 2022 and 2021 look like. 50% of the families here support the church financially. Now, some of you are like, oh, wow, that's great. And others of you are probably like, oh, that's not very much. But I think where I want to take us this morning is, what would it look like if it was 75%? What could we do? What impact could we have? What good could we do in this city 
in our community if it was 75% of the households? What if it was 100%? Not only what could we do, but what would be being done into the hearts and the lives of our families, in your homes, if this number and this percentage grew? What would it say about the kind of people we are? Because I promise you, if you walk out those doors and into the world, there's not a lot of like teaching on the importance of generosity. You'll find lots of information about how to make more money and why more is better, but not about what happens when you let go of it and when you trust God with it. And so I wonder what it would look like for us as a church to take Paul's word seriously, to not put our hope and our trust in wealth, to place it in God and to live a generous life. You see, in the second, we're going to celebrate the sacrament of communion. And the sacrament is really just a celebration of generosity. It's an acknowledgement of God's generosity to us, the generosity of his son, and his son's generous gift of his life. Like Our response is a percentage of, of what we earn. Christ gives his whole life for us. And so as you come down to receive... May it be a reminder that something happens when you give. There is a recipient on the other end of that gift. There are lives that are being changed by your generosity, just like our lives are changed by God's generosity. May it inspire us to live more like him. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come before you this morning, help us One, to be grateful for all of the ways that you are generous to us. And two, help us to then in turn live generously with others. God, inspire us to trust you, to let go of what we have, to know that what we have is enough, that more is a lie, and that you have given us all that we need. God, let us trust you with our gifts knowing that you will use them to further your kingdom and that in doing so, we get to live a life that is truly life. We pray this in your name. Amen.